Whoa, whoa, whoa. There you go. I've been involved with uh, music since I was a kid, and uh, strictly by the Lord's uh, leading, I became a minister of music, not because I have great education in music. And so I really feel like Christmas, when we're singing a Christmas cantata, uh, I, I told my wife yesterday, uh, I was, th- this is her vision, and it's going to be much bigger than what you saw with the choir. We've got an addition on the stage, and we've got all kinds of things that are be going on. The kids' choir is going to come in and sing in the middle, and, and there's uh, some actors. And, and uh, In fact, the whole building is going to be turned into the Taj Mahal <laughs> in about another 10 years. Um, I told her yesterday, I said, I'm glad that it was your idea to do this, and I'm I'm glad we're doing it, and I'm glad you asked me to direct it. Because at first she was going to direct it, and then she asked me. And, and frankly, I just love to lead stuff like this because I think the best seat in the house is right there. And uh, so it feels like Christmas to me uh, when we're doing the Christmas cantata. And uh, I love that. I love Christmas time. Uh, I, I'm fully aware that there are a lot of Christians in the world who almost would say, let's stop celebrating Christmas because... You know, it had pagan roots in the holiday. And, and, uh, and then there are a lot of non-Christians who say, stop celebrating Christmas. It's too religious. And, and, and you know, this year in Washington State has made the national news this year with our religious and irreligious uh, showings at the uh, Capitol House. And, uh, you know, it's getting to be more and more of a, uh, of a brouhaha every year. I just want to ask a question this year and answer it through these three Sundays before Christmas. What's the big deal with Christmas? What's the big deal? I think a lot of us know a, a, a fair amount about Christmas, but I wonder if we have really taken the time to read the Christmas story and to understand the great and important uh, facets of our, of our salvation and of our belief as Christians that begin with the Christmas story. We're going to start in Luke chapter 3 today. My goal in the next three weeks is to touch on all the parts of the Christmas story in in Matthew and in Luke. We're going to start in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. Now I know this sounds like it's after the Christmas story, but follow with me here. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Metat, and so on. Drop down to verse 37. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. When we ask the question, what's the big deal about with Christmas? The first answer to the question is this. The big deal about Christmas is this. Jesus is the direct descendant 
of Adam. And that is recorded for us here in the Gospel of Luke. The importance of the baby in the manger goes all the way back to the creation of mankind and God's dealings with Adam and Eve. God gave Adam and Eve a perfect environment. He gave them work to do. He gave them one command to obey. He gave them the consequences of disobedience for that command. And when they chose to disobey, he gave them a punishment. But he also gave them hope. He had told them, if you eat from this tree, dying you will die. I believe that later we understand that's a reference to physical death and spiritual death in hell. He says, if you disobey me, there's going to be punishment. And they disobeyed, and he came and he says, you're going to die now. But then he said to Eve, he said, Eve, listen to this. Because you have done this, you're cursed. He's talking, excuse me, he's talking to the serpent. You are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God gave Adam and Eve hope that they would not be locked under the confines of death that he pronounced on them. He said, the hope is going to come in the seed or in the descendant that will come from Eve. Now look at chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain and she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Eve said, this is him. This is the one that's going to deliver us. This is the one that's going to crush the head of Satan. And of course, he was not the one. She didn't understand that several thousand years would transpire between her and her seed that would come. But God declared that the hope for mankind's deliverance from the power of Satan would be in a descendant of Adam and Eve. So it's not insignificant that we see God using a large piece of Scripture here in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23, going all the way to verse 38, to say this, this baby in the manger is a descendant of Adam and Eve. It's not at all insignificant. It was vital that the baby in the manger who would grow up to be the Savior be of human lineage, of being a human being in terms of his birth, in terms of his human nature. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 1, and let's look at the second thing that's important, that makes Christmas important. Matthew chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. And what we learn here in Matthew is this, that the baby in the manger is the direct descendant of Abraham. Look at Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's the summary. And then we see in verse 2, he says, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah, and so on. And it comes all the way down to verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now both Mary and Adam trace their lineage to Adam. In Mary's case, God traces it all the way back to Adam. But both Mary and Joseph were in the line of Abraham. 
Now, we, again, we ask the question, so what's the big deal? Well, in God's dealing with mankind, he started with Adam and Eve, and he said, somebody will descend from you who will come to be your Savior. And then when he came to Abraham, God narrowed his focus from all of humanity as the source of a Savior to the descendants of a single man. It's not just going to be any human, but it will be a human who will come from the line of Abraham. Listen to the promise God gave Abraham. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiply, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, in your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. At this point, God said, Abraham, out of you is going to come the blessing that will go to all people, not from any human being, but out of your descendants. God essentially narrowed his selection of a savior from all descendants of Eve to one who would come from Abram. We call these people today the Jewish people. We could call them the Hebrew people. We could call them the chosen people. We could call them Abraham's descendants. But God said, I'm going to limit myself to choosing a Savior who comes out of the line of Abraham. And so this is the second reason that Christmas is a big deal. The third reason is this. The baby in the manger is the direct descendant of King David. Look with me at Matthew 1 and verse 6. Start, it started with Abraham in verse 2, and it comes down to verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon, and so on. And it goes all the way down again to Christ. Again, we would say, what's the big deal with him being the direct descendant of David? Well, in Luke, we read this. The angel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. When the angel spoke to Mary, he said, This is going to come to pass. He will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's another name for the, the Jewish people or the, the uh, people of Israel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The first king of Saul of Israel was Saul. He lost his right to be the king because of disobedience to God. And God gave him specific directions, and he clearly disobeyed. So God replaced Saul with David. Saul didn't give up easily. David had to run around the desert for 20 years, literally, while Saul tried to kill him because Saul wouldn't give up the throne. When David was finally seated as the king on his throne in a lovely palace, he realized that the ark of God, which was the place where God met with man and atoned for sin, that that ark was housed in a tent. So he said, I'm going to build God a temple. I'm going to build God a house. And in response to David's love for God, God made a promise to him. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is sent by the, by the hand of Samuel the prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. 
When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God chose to replace Saul with David, and because of David's great love for God, God said, look, out of your family there will always be a king on the throne of Israel. That was a significant thing because later, and we see in the history of of Israel, that with other kingdoms, they came and went, but to have one family, to one dynasty was a significant thing. From the time of David on, God's promises to Israel contained the promise of national deliverance under a king. This especially became important when God allowed the nation of Israel to be conquered and many people to be taken captive out of the country. During these times, God spoke through the prophets a message of future deliverance for the nation through a Messiah king or a deliverer king. And this, these prophecies reached somewhat of an apex in the book of Daniel with these words. Daniel says, he saw this vision. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancients of days. That's talking about Christ coming to God the Father. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. God gave this prophecy to Daniel that there would be this divine person who would come and be the king of Israel. So in the announcement of the baby to come to the manger, we see him as a descendant of Adam to conquer Satan. We see him as a descendant of Abraham through which the world would be blessed. We see him as a descendant of King David to bring national deliverance to Israel. And we find this. He is the direct creation of the Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew 1 verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together. In the marriages of that day, the engagement would typically last at least nine months. Can you figure out why they would do that? The engagement would last nine months to make sure everything was on the up and up. And sometime about a year from the time they were engaged, the groom would come to take his bride, and uh, essentially there would be a wedding feast, and there would be a consummation, a physical act uh, of relationship, and that would be the coming together that's spoken of here. They were engaged, but before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or a righteous man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. In that day, the engagement agreement could only be broken with a divorce. 
It was a legally binding agreement. And so he said, look, she's pregnant. I, I don't need to hold her up to public ridicule. He was, a, he was an extra good man. See, to hold her up to public ridicule would have vindicated himself. He'd say, hey, I had nothing to do with this. I am a righteous man. But he said, look, I don't care about me, but it's not appropriate for me to marry her. And so he's going to put her away secretly. He's going to divorce. He's going to break the engagement secretly or privately. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, or verse 23, excuse me. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her, that is, he did not have sexual relations with her until she brought forth her firstborn son and named him Jesus. Jesus is the direct creation of the Holy Spirit. Look at the annunciation that came to, to Mary. This is the one that came to Joseph. Here's what the angel said to Mary. The angel said, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have been blessed with grace by God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man, I have not had sexual relations with a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. God caused Mary to become pregnant. God created a human nature, a human body within Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew says that this was done that a prophecy might be fulfilled from Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign that is a miracle that points in a direction. He will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Make sure you get something clear right now, friends. The second person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son of God was eternally existing. He was not born on Christmas Day. He took on a human nature on Christmas Day. It's an important, important distinction because if he was not God in the flesh, he could not bear the wrath of God. The second person of the Trinity, the divine person we refer to as Jesus Christ our Savior, was not born. We could refer to him and his humanity as being born, but properly we say he came to earth, he took on human flesh. Listen to these words from Philippians. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God or being just like God, did not consider it something he needed to hang on to, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God tells us that Jesus Christ existed in heaven with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, and they had the appearance of God. Now, this is one of the challenging things for us human beings to get our minds around because when we ask the question, what does God look like? <laughs> we have to refer to a verse like from John chapter 4 when it says God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. While God is a spirit, he chooses to make himself known in magnificence. You can go back and read some of the prophets in the Old Testament when they had visions of God and they saw something incredible and they tried to explain it. And they did the best they could. We see the Apostle Paul caught up to the third heaven and he says, I saw things that's not lawful for a man to see. And, and, and so God gave me a thorn in the flesh so I wouldn't be proud because I saw the greatness that was there. We see these kind of uh, things spoken about. Moses said to God, I want to see you. And God said, no man can see me and live. And so God said, I'm going to let you see my afterglow. And he said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock where you can look through, and I'm going to pass by. And after I'm gone, you're going to see my afterglow. And the result of the afterglow was his face glowed. Now, here's the point of all that. We don't know exactly what it would be like to see God face to face, but we know it's magnificent. And that's what Christ laid aside when he came to earth. Because Isaiah 53 says there's nothing special about him. We look at him and we go, ho-hum, another guy. I don't think that's what God looks like in heaven. And that's the point. Christ said, I, I, it's not something that I have to hang on to. That word robbery, that's a hard word to translate. The King James uses the word robbery, and so does the New King James. Other translations try to paraphrase it out. And it means that, like a treasure that you cling to and you won't let go of it. Jesus Christ willingly said, I'll let go of, this, of the magnificence of heaven. I mean, just think of the idea of being worshipped. The people on earth that were believers in God were worshiping God. They're offering sacrifices in that Old Testament time frame. And Jesus is one of the recipients of that. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit receiving that worship. He let that go and he took on human nature. And he didn't come like a six foot ten giant strapping six pack. He's a baby in a manger. He did not consider the magnificence of having something to be clung on to, but he made himself of no reputation. That is, he was humble, taking the form of a bond servant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. The idea of likeness is this. As, as to his essential nature, he never stopped being God, but he took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. And he limited himself willingly to the confines of being a baby. Did Jesus cry as a baby? Yes, he did. 
because he got hungry, and that's the way babies tell their mamas they're hungry. It's not sinful when a baby cries, unless it's in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I'm sure Jesus always waited till seven in the morning. Jesus limited himself voluntarily and came as a baby. And he subjected himself so much to human nature that he even experienced death for us. The word that we use properly about this is incarnation, to be in flesh. Jesus came and took on human flesh. Why is this Holy Spirit concept so important? Why is it so important that we understand that the baby in the manger is the direct creation of the Holy Spirit? It's important because of this. God does not create evil. God created Adam without sin, and God created the human nature of Christ without sin. If Jesus had been born of a man and a woman, he would have been only human and would have had a sinful human nature from birth, as Romans 5 tells us about all of humanity. But as the product of the Holy Spirit's direct creation, Christ's human nature was without sin. There's no reason to even believe there was a female egg involved in the process. Mary was a surrogate mother. The Holy Spirit created the human nature of Christ and she nurtured him to physical birth and nurtured him as a small child. She was the servant of God to give birth to this creation of the Holy Spirit. Christ was as fully human as Adam in Adam's original creation and as innocently pure as Adam was in his original creation. So in the announcement of the baby to come to the manger, we see him as a descendant of Adam, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of King David, the direct creation of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he can be the Savior of mankind. No representation of Christ and no representation of Christmas is complete without all of these things. He's not one, he's not the other. He's not one sometimes and the other sometimes. He's all of them. That's All of these first four enable him to be the savior of mankind. Of all the truths misunderstood by the chosen people, this is one of the greatest from the Old Testament. They failed to grasp the impact of passages like this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. When the Jewish people of Jesus' day read this prophecy, they saw the last line. They said, that's right, we are looking for the Messiah and we can't wait to pour oil on his head and say, you are the king of Israel, rule Israel with a rod of iron and make all of our our enemy nations bow down before us. They were so excited about this one who was going to come and, and be the king. They knew well, they knew well this truth that he's going to be a direct descendant of King David and they were so excited about it. But look at what the king was coming to do. 
to make an end of sin. They missed the point that this was going to be a spiritual kingdom as well as a physical kingdom. They completely missed that. And so when Jesus talked about the spiritual life, they said, no, 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 we don't want to hear about that. Talk to, you know, show us the miracles and talk to us about the, about the kingdom. Talk to us about overthrowing Rome. They utterly misunderstood prophecies like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him to be stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That literally means, probably the best paraphrase is this, they said, this guy's touched in the head. This guy's off his rocker. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it pleased Jehovah God to bruise Jesus Christ. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the story that the the people of God were looking for part of the Messiah to come, not the whole story. This is really fleshed out for us in Romans 5 when it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, The free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounded, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam was created in innocence, and he chose to sin. And because of his sin, God condemned all of us to die. Adam took the test for all of us. And we are all sinners before God. Jesus Christ came in an innocent human nature with the divine nature together. And so when when Satan personally came and threw everything he had at Christ... Just like he did Eve, the results were different. Jesus stood up and said, no, no, no. And if you read the text carefully, it says Satan didn't just tempt him once. He left him for a while, which tells me he kept trying and trying and trying and trying to get him to sin. And he wouldn't because he was the son of God. He wasn't just the baby in the manger with the human nature. He was God in humanity together. And he stood up to sin. And he stood up to the devil and he said no. And he went on the cross and God poured out his wrath on him. And he poured it out and he took it and he said, My God, why are you forsaking me? And God poured out his wrath and then it was finished. And he died And he was buried, I think, to prove he was dead. And to give a sign three days later when he rose from the dead to say nothing 
in this sinful world can conquer me. That's the baby in the manger. All of that together, he is the savior of mankind. He's a descendant of Adam. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of King David. He is the savior king. If you're a little bit burned out on the feasting and the gifting and such, you have my permission to let go of it. But don't let go of Christmas. This event marks the beginning of our salvation. Now, I know salvation isn't a process, but I know the work of Christ was a process. And it started when he came and took on that human nature. And this event... Christmas is about commemorating that event. And if we can get our minds and our hearts around it to where we genuinely notice the things of Christmas and we genuinely say, thank God that Christ came, then we can have a joyful heart. It's great to give gifts. I hope uh, my family gives me lots of them. It's great to eat a lot of food. I ate at the assisted living home on Thanksgiving. I intend to eat on my own table at Christmas time. But the baby who came in the manger is the reason for the season. Not just the baby, but the baby who came to be our Savior. He was uniquely qualified, singularly qualified to be our Savior. And as such, he deserves recognition and celebration. And if you were to ask the question, how do I recognize properly the Son of God who came in that manger? The number one way to celebrate Christmas is to believe in that baby who grew up and died on the cross to pay God's payment for your sin. Until you believe in Christ, you are not celebrating Christmas. You'll have a holiday with lights, but you will not have a Christmas celebration. God has commanded us to believe in Christ. And when we believe in Him, we honor the Christ of Christmas. The number two way to celebrate Christmas is with worship in your heart toward the Savior. Ask yourself if this is a season of worship. It needs to be. The number three way is to help someone else believe in the Savior. What greater greater way to worship the Savior than to bring someone to Him? Make no mistake, Christmas is a big deal, and we should make it so because it is the beginning of our salvation. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for putting Jesus Christ through your wrath, so that we could be saved. Jesus, thank you for laying aside the glories of heaven and taking on a human body, an infant body, a helpless body, and subjecting yourself to the helplessness of being a baby. But thank you for not staying there. Thank you for growing up to be our Savior. Thank you for going to the cross for us. May you be honored by what we do in this month. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's take our hymn book, please, and turn to number 137. We're going to sing a song that we already sang today. We're going to sing it again. I hope.
that you will have perhaps a little more insight and a little more worship as you sing this together. Let's stand and sing it. come to know Christ this Christmas time, it would be our joy to sit with you and open the word, or for any other thing for which you need help in your Christian life, it would be our blessing. You're all invited to the welcome room. We've got some refreshments there. I hope you'll stick around so we can visit together. Thank you for coming.